Hello and welcome to another episode of A World to Win. This week I talked to Andrew Murray, the former chair of the Stop the War Coalition, former chief of staff at Unite and a former advisor to Jeremy Corbyn. We discuss his book, Is Socialism Possible in Britain? Reflections on the Corbyn years, which very much does what it says on the tin, but also looks back over the longer history of the Labour Party and situates the Corbyn moment within that. And we discuss all of that this week. As always, thank you so much to all of our patrons who make this show possible. If you want to become a patron, we really need your support to carry on bringing you the show. Please do sign up at patreon.com slash a world to win pod. There's a link in the description. If you want to support the show in another way, please do share this episode or other episodes on social media, tagging at a world to win pod on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Hello and welcome to another episode of A World to Win. I am here with Andrew Murray to talk about his book, Is Socialism Possible in Britain? Reflections on the Corbyn Years. How are you doing today, Andrew? Yeah, I'm great. Thanks, Grace. Good to be with you. Good. It's great to have you here. I really enjoyed the book. Uh, Obviously, encourage listeners to go out and read it. It kind of reminded me, particularly the early chapters of Ralph Miliband's study of Labour, parliamentary socialism. And it's very useful because that only goes up to the 60s. So yeah, it's very interesting to have that kind of history of Labour and Labourism and the different currents within it and put so succinctly as well. I'm just going to kind of take us through some questions that really follow the frameworks out by the book. So we'll kind of go through historically. Mm-hmm. And at one point you talk about the ILP and you said that its mantra might have been the only way is ethics, which I thought was A, very funny and B, very insightful. What did you mean by that? And how has that tradition endured in the Labour Party to this day? What I meant by it is that we're in other countries in Europe, perhaps most obviously in Germany, the initial socialist parties were either informed by or heavily influenced by Marxism. Marxism in British socialism was a very much a minority trend from the uh, beginning. This is the old hoary old cliche that uh, the Labour Party owed more to Methodism than Marxism. And the ILP, which was the first really large and rooted socialist organisation, very much tended towards seeing socialism as a superior ethical system. They didn't really acknowledge the class struggle. They did a bit later on between the wars, but in the pre-war period when British socialism was taking shape, it very much took a sort of moral view of the inequalities of capitalist society and uh, and indeed of imperialism, uh, rather than what one could say the more rigorous uh, Marxist analytical view And the main influences in the ILP, well, I mean, there were people like uh, Ramsay MacDonald and uh, Philip Snowden, who, who of course, um, became notorious later on. And people like uh, Robert Blatchford, who confessed that the uh, how to establish a socialist society and what it would look like were two of the issues that he'd given least consideration to. Uh, and he was a, a very uh, successful socialist propagandist before the First World War. So it would be exaggerating to say it's a very British trend, but it was definitely very pronounced in Britain, uh, this view that a sort of uh, utopian moral crusade uh, was going to be sufficient to secure social advance. You also talk a little bit later about the divide in the Labour Party between hard and soft reformism. Can you talk a little bit about those and how those two currents have manifested themselves historically? Well, in a sense, it's a way of reformulating the idea of the right and the left in the Labour Party, because no trend in the Labour Party was really revolutionary uh, in the in the communist or the uh, Leninist sense. But you had a view, uh, which I say was preponderant in a way in the early years, that socialist society was something quite different from capitalism, and you needed to get from one to the other. But the main way of getting there was through parliament, parliamentary reform, incremental in- changes introduced by a Labour government. That position 
subsequently got displaced, certainly in practice and uh, later on, perhaps in the 1950s in theory, by a view that you didn't really need to talk about getting to socialist society at all. You just needed to clip capitalism's wings, deal with its worst excesses, and that that would be sufficient. And the idea that you needed to use Parliament to get to socialism is the trend that uh, associated with Tony Benn, um, largely with Michael Foote, earlier with Nye Bevan. The view that you didn't really need to talk about socialist society at all, and that if socialism meant anything, it simply meant the amelioration of capitalism, that was the hegemonic view in the Labour Party, and is the the one you know associated with the uh, Wilson Callahan years, Hugh Gates skill earlier, and it, it, that was the dominant trend in the Labour Party until you get to New Labour when any form of discussion of socialism became marginalised and it was purely a project of managing capitalism. That's what I would would say is the main uh, reformist uh, trend uh, in the Labour mm. Party. But um, the trend that Corbynism comes from clearly is the trend that wishes to get to a socialist society but sees Parliament as the primary uh, instrument of achieving that. Um, a lot of people might say that the closest um, the Labour Party ever came to a kind of, you know, a route to parliamentary socialism other than Corbynism would have been after 1945. Um, and indeed, there were lots of comparisons with 1945 that were made by McDonnell in particular about, you know, the way that we needed to kind of fundamentally transform our economic model. Yet your um, analysis of that situation is quite different, as indeed are kind of most socialists of that period in time. So what would a real socialist government have looked like in that point? Where did it fail? Well, the 1945 government it is sort of bathed in a sort of rosy nostalgia, which is partly understandable. It did introduce the NHS, which is still, however, beleaguered, still with us today, and it strengthened the welfare state as well. But it was also a government about uh, rescuing capitalism. Although you, you get into sort of grey areas, you can take measures that could be a step towards socialism, but also have the effect of propping up the existing system, depending on the dynamic, the political dynamic around it, and indeed the intentions of the government. But the Attlee government, its nationalisations were largely directed towards maintaining important industries at the time, like railways and the coal industry, which has suffered from chronic underinvestment uh, in private ownership since really the end of the First World War, if not earlier. And India aside, it was also very committed to maintaining the British Empire and the whole system of exploitation uh, that uh, went with that. So I think its, uh, its socialist virtues are somewhat exaggerated and perhaps look better in hindsight because Labour's record in government from a, a socialist point of view gives very slim pickings since. the uh, Wilson did in, in, introduce some important social reforms, but the Wilson-Callaghan governments were basically about crisis management and then New Labour, the New Labour years were not about any form of uh, uh, of socialism and any ameliorative aspects uh, of the new Labour years, which there were some, were completely overshadowed by the commitment to neoliberal uh, deregulation uh, and, of course, to imperialist war. So so perhaps that explains why the 1945 government is seen as such a triumph. And it would be churlish to deny it, it, did, it did squeeze inequality in this country uh, to a certain extent, uh, and it did make improve life for millions of working class families, that can't be denied. Uh, but by then, it, it, it never really, I think Labour's leaders never really had the intention of uh, creating uh, a socialist society uh, as it should properly be understood. 
In many ways, the situation that we're in today looks much more like the 1970s, certainly macroeconomically speaking, with this kind of stagflationary context and the feeling that things aren't working very well, that there's lots of infrastructure that's kind of collapsing and uh, the government is kind of a little bit out of control. Yet workers obviously have far less power today than they did in the 1970s. Why was it, in your view, that, you know, that coalition of kind of the organized working class plus some leadership from the Labour Party failed to realize a genuinely left-wing government along the lines of, say, Tony Benn's um, alternative economic strategy in the 1970s? And what might we have learned from that experience? Well, the 1970s, you you are right to say there are economic uh, similarities. I think it's very striking as well as someone who who lived as an adult just in the 1970s, remembering the sort of sense of national malaise that Mm. there was then. And we have the same sense now where you have a sense of a a country sort of slowly falling to bits, nothing really working anymore. The people in charge don't know what, what they're doing, lurching from one you know, crisis to another. I think in a ways today's crisis is more serious. Uh, as you will you will well mm. know, Grace, the living stand or real wages uh, haven't budged for, what's it, when, 2007, 2008 uh, overall. Uh, and we reel from one crisis to another, from the banking collapse through austerity to the pandemic and now the return of inflation. So in a way, it feels uh, almost uh, worse from that point of view than Mm. the 1970s. Now, the 1970s were, as you say, a period when the trade union movement uh, was much stronger. There was far more working class self-assertiveness, although it's good to see that starting to return now in in the different situation we're in today. However, there was the, the sort of traditional right wing in the Labour movement was much stronger uh, in a way, much more rooted in trade unions like the engineering and the electrical trade unions. And there wasn't the industrial militancy for which the 1970s are famed, somewhat exaggeratedly, but it was it was true there were more, more strikes then than there are now, wasn't really matched by a political sense as to how we get to a better form of society. Uh, the trend associated with Callaghan uh, and uh, Harold Wilson uh, was very strong. We had the same problem that Jeremy Corbyn faced in terms of a parliamentary Labour Party uh, that was uh, uh, predominantly right-wing, uh, quite hostile to any notions of uh, radicalism. And the left uh, that had, had in a way, a stronger position than it did more recently with uh, leaders like Tony Benn and a strong position in some unions, the miners and the transport and general workers union most notably. But there wasn't a perspective of coalescing that strength into a decisive push to change uh, the social economic model. That really only started to develop once Labour had lost power in 1979 and you had the whole Ben movement that was, however, defeated by the internal strength of Labour's right wing with a lot of help from uh, the media and so on. What is it, do you think, about inflation and periods of kind of high inflation and, and particularly stagflation that seems to bring out class conflict in our society so clearly? Because as you said, we're kind of seeing a re-emergence of Uh, an assertive labour movement in this country, which is something that we haven't seen in, you know, really since the 1970s. What do you think is it about inflation that brings that out? And yeah, what could we kind of learn from the struggles and failures of the struggles that were taking place in this context in the 70s? Well, funnily enough, I was talking about this just uh, uh, a couple of weeks ago with my old boss at Unite, Len McCluskey. We, We sort of both retired from the union Uh, towards the end of last year. And for most of the time when he was United's General Secretary, he was saying inflation was 2 or 3%. And he said, if 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 inflation's at 2% and your boss offers you 1% pay increase, then, okay, it's a pay cut, but workers aren't going to go out on strike over 1%. 
by and large. I mean, it's a, it's a sort of it's a real pay cut that you can uh, live with. Uh, whereas when inflation is 10% or more and you're getting offers of 4 or 5%, you are taking a real hit. Uh, and that's coming on top of long, long periods of real wage stagnation. So it's not like it's coming. It's not like it's a bust coming after a boom. It's really, I mean, we're, we're, we are generation busts now, uh, you know, for more than uh, 12, 13 years. So that is bound to drive industrial action where people feel they're organized and have the strength to take it. And even places like Amazon, where it seems to be a more or less spontaneous uh, eruption, not organized by any trade union. But today, as we speak, we've got dockers on strike in Felixstowe and barristers, uh, which certainly didn't happen in the 1970s, uh, talking about going on indefinite Uh, indefinite strike action. And I think it's a combination of high inflation running well ahead of the the wage offers coming against the background of a long, long time where people have only been able to maintain their living standards or seek to improve them through taking on debt. Uh, And those are are perhaps different features of the situation uh, to the the 1970s. Now, there's, there's no magic wand that can guarantee you win uh, industrial suits. That wasn't the case in the 1970s. People talk about the strength of the trade union movement in the 1970s. Uh, But I remember going to the picket line at Grumwick's in 1976, uh, an emblematic dispute over trade union recognition under a Labour government when the trade unions had about 13 million members in the country. And we lost. Uh, the right-wing employer, with backing from some of the Tories, saw off um, the attempt to organise that plant in northwest London. So, the, the, you know, the, there isn't. It's the unity, it's solidarity. Uh, are you know they can become cliches, but they are absolutely uh, the key uh, uh, to winning this. But it's also important to have a political articulation. Uh, of what's going on, um, to have voices in Parliament, to have, ideally, you'd want the Labour Party to be championing uh, the cause of the workers. Unfortunately, we are a long, long, long way away from that with uh, Keir Starmer at the moment. Mm. Now, society has obviously changed a lot since the 1970s, particularly over the course of the 80s, and you give a thorough account of, of those changes in the book. What did you mean when you said in kind of explaining the emergence of a Corbynism, but also a lot of the movements that preceded it, that the simultaneous erosion of the bases of imperialist social democracy and of the hegemonic project of the ruling class has created space for political phenomena, which would have seemed implausible not long ago? Well, I think it's the erosion of the basis uh, for imperialism or the, the economic basis for giving a measure of prosperity to the widest range of British people, has been going on particularly, I think, in the period of uh, globalisation, when there's been huge downward pressure on wages in certain sectors, particularly manufacturing, you know, going on internationally for some uh, considerable time. And as I've said, we've had a long period of uh, stagnation uh, in terms of wages, real wages and living standards in this country. All this means there is not much room for, uh, not as much room as there was previously, for uh, the ruling class to to manoeuvre. The sort of protected positions that the British Empire had, that the Stirling bloc had even after the decline of formal empire, all of those uh, have uh, eroded. And when sections of the working class are actually being forced into a sort of competition with workers in Asia, for example, and you know capital is moving globally, there isn't that room for a protected degree of prosperity that previous generations uh, enjoyed to some extent or, or other. And also, I think the the ruling class, and this is something that perhaps isn't addressed often enough by the left, which is everyone talks about changes in the working class, but changes in the working class between now and the 1970s are significant and obvious. But a change in one class in society 
can only mean changes in all of them because they don't exist as separate categories. They exist in an interdependence. And one of the changes in the establishment is, I would put it as, of course, we have a ruling class in Britain, but do we still have a British ruling class in the same sense as we had uh, in previous generations where the um, establishment was very much tied in to society and the economy in Britain itself? Uh, whereas now you you almost have a sort of deracinated ruling class that is very much oriented towards a global economy uh, that is based in London, but is not looking inwards, as it were, to the economy of Britain, but looking outwards to uh, the global economy and maximum profit making there. And this has all rewritten the script of politics to some extent uh, or another. Uh, the uh, Trumpian populism in somewhat diluted form that Boris Johnson represented and that Liz Truss will carry on to some degree or other uh, is uh, an expression of that about trying to find a new basis for um, right-wing politics uh, in this country when the old one has eroded. Uh, and, uh, you know, Corbynism too sort of uh, in, a, in a way slipped through those uh, those cracks as a radical solution, uh, a very diverse movement united around it, and not primarily sourced from the institutions that would have sourced a left-wing insurgent movement 40 or 50 years ago, by which I mean the trade unions. The trade unions piled in behind Corbyn or Corbynism, at least mine, Unite did, uh, others did to some degree or another. But we didn't, uh, it, it didn't um, originate uh, from uh, within us. And in a way, those cracks widened the longer Corbynism went on, or at least after 2017, they did, mm. with splits between the metropolitan support that Jeremy uh, enjoyed and the Labour voting areas in other parts of the country um, where um, the position deteriorated. Um, it's, it kind of links to the question I want to ask you next, actually, which was that you described Corbyn and the movement that emerged around him as the living embodiment of the politics of mass protest. What impact did that have on the... Well, firstly, what does he mean by that? And secondly, what impact did that have on his leadership of the Labour Party? Well, what I meant by it is the period of the left from, well, certainly through the new Labour years, even uh, uh, somewhat earlier, since possibly the end of the miners' strike, had been pretty much marginalised in the conventional political arena. But there had been certainly two really big upsurges of left-wing or left-led protest outside of uh, the parliamentary arena. The first was the anti-war movement against the Iraq war and the uh, Afghanistan occupation, which I was very involved in and uh, brought uh, an awful lot of people uh, out uh, onto the streets. And the second was the uh, initial movements against austerity in 2011 through to 2015, uh, very diverse. It includes Occupy, UK Uncut, the People's Assembly. So the left was mainly existing in those years as a force on the streets. And Jeremy, of course, personally, was absolutely centrally involved uh, in all of that. I mean, so too, to some degree, was John MacDonald, um, Diane Abbott and others. They were marginal in Parliament, but very central uh, to left politics uh, on the streets. And I think Jeremy, without that record, I mean, I was chair of the Stop the War Coalition, and the number of meetings I did with Jeremy around the country, I, I simply could not count. It'd be well into three figures, certainly. And, and he was always there, whether it was a small protest, a picket line, or a big rally uh, against war, against austerity, in defence against racism, in defence of uh, migrants, whatever. He was always there. And so that meant that in 2015, when he started going around the country for the Labour leadership election, he was actually much better known than his parliamentary record would have suggested uh, amongst the people active in and around uh, the Labour Party. Now, what difference it made, I, I think it's one of the two things about Jeremy that the 
ruling class or the establishment most abominated. One was his anti-imperialism, but the other was the fact that he wasn't really immersed in the parliamentary game. It wasn't his thing. I mean, he's a very diligent constituency MP, but as a backbencher in Parliament, I mean, his role hadn't been more than marginal. And this idea that he would actually prefer to be campaigning on the streets, he actually thought external pressure on Parliament was an essential part of democracy, not an aberration or an excrescence. That was one of the things that was most unpalatable to the political mainstream. Um, Now, one of the paradoxes, I think, of the Corbyn years is we'd had these big upsurges of sort of mass political campaigning outside Parliament. But once Jeremy became leader, a lot of that energy was directed into life within the Labour Party, into sustaining his leadership, which often meant activity within the Labour Party. And the sort of the extra parliamentary campaigning, which was a source of strength for Corbyn type politics, diminished. And uh, there was a level of disengagement there. And I think that was in the moment of its success, Corbyn's leadership sort of diminished uh, its own base, uh, its own mass base, because you're not going to change the political temperature in this country simply by parliament alone, even by winning a parliamentary majority alone, unless you have the capacity to get millions of people involved in actions, however small and limited, in changing their own lives. You're not going to be able to sustain a radical project in government worthy of the name. Now, mass movements, mass protests can't be sucked out of thin air. There has to be issues there and causes. But nevertheless, I feel that once Jeremy became leader of the opposition, that you know historic constitutional role and locked into all the requirements of that, it really wasn't his forte and it wasn't the forte of the Corbyn movement. We were mm. better off um, uh, outside. And getting a, a synthesis of the parliamentary and the extra-parliamentary uh, remains a bit of a holy grail uh, <laughs> yet to be achieved. Yeah, your point about how that was really what um, scared the the ruling class and particularly other people in the Labour Party is really true. I, the, Tony Blair did a very revealing interview maybe a year or two ago. I think it was actually I was reviewing um, Seb Payne's book on the Red Wall seats yeah. and why the Tories had won them. And Tony Blair in that uh, in that interview with Seb Payne said that the thing that most worried him about Corbynism was the involvement of all these kind of, you know, social movements and uh, the the rabble basically being able to kind of influence policy and ultimately potentially the British state. And that was kind of saying the quiet part out loud, really, which was that, you know, these institutions aren't supposed to be in any way accessible to the vast majority of people. And Corbynism was a moment at which they kind of nearly at least were. Yeah, exactly. Well, Tony Blair is an elite politician par excellence. And yes, that was the sense that, you know, Jeremy had at least one foot outside the Westminster bubble, uh, outside its priorities and its uh, procedures. Uh, and that was something they couldn't endure. I mean, one one thing that any establishment just hates is a deepening of democracy mm. and an engagement of people in a in an uncontrolled way in shaping the political agenda. And, you know, for Blair, as indeed for really uh, every prime minister, uh, keeping uh, politics within the sort of manageable confines of what goes on in, in Westminster is a priority. And Jeremy once said to me that he wanted to move the leader of the opposition's office out of the House of Commons, out of Parliament to somewhere else so we could just get out of that suffocating uh, atmosphere where you're <laughs> sitting there in rather antiquated offices besieged by enemies isolated from your friends and it's really the most unhealthy place for developing a left-wing movement and um, I mean he mm. never got round to doing it and perhaps it wasn't a priority but it was an interesting idea uh, yeah. that the leader, make it, the leader of the opposition put him somewhere accessible outside that claustrophobic uh, environment of the House of Commons. Mm. Moving on slightly to a different element of Corbynism, what do you think were the key components of his economic agenda or the corbyn Macdonald economic agenda, shall we say? And what would have been its kind of most significant victories had it been enacted versus its limitations? 
Well, the the main, I mean, it's it's often said, and it's somewhat true, that actually economically, it wasn't profoundly radical by uh, historic standards. But it's a point I think I make in the book that that's not really relevant. The only standards that you have to judge it by are the standards of contemporary politics, were anything that pushes back against the neoliberal consensus is seen as threatening and menacing. And that is what the sort of McDonnell-Corbyn agenda did. Uh, It pushed back against the absolute worship of markets as the regulator of all economic and most human activity, which is the sort of Hayek uh, dogma. And it uh, proposed a new balance between worker and employer, between public uh, and uh, private. And I think I think it started off very much leaning on anti-austerity. And that's understandable because that was the priority uh, of the time after when he was elected. We'd had five years of austerity. It was increasingly biting. It was increasingly exacerbating uh, all sorts of social problems and divisions uh, in society. And that's relatively easy to to address in terms of uh, uh, reversing cuts in public expenditure in various areas. The strategic element, I think Corbynism ended up slightly in a no-man's land between neoliberal orthodoxy, which it had clearly uh, departed from, and uh, a sort of more comprehensive socialist view. One of the things, I mean, and and I've got the highest regard for John McDonnell, uh, and I think of all the sort of political Corbynites, uh, he he stepped up uh, more than almost anyone to try and meet the challenge of this unexpected opportunity. But I did disagree with him when he he said Labour would introduce no capital controls, uh, for example, because that, to me, would be some sort of capital control, almost essential to keep a uh, a radical government uh, afloat and to you know break the power of the markets. But clearly, if you look at what was proposed, a lot of it was almost you know done under the pressure of the pandemic, uh, even by the uh, uh, the Tories mm. getting homeless people you know off the streets. That was done more or less overnight, when it, having been previously described as quite impossible. And clearly, the key nationalisations that we proposed of the energy and water utilities now seem absolutely more more relevant than ever. But I would have seen a Corbyn government as much a process as a programme that you you come in with a basic set of demands meeting the immediate needs. You advance them. You would expect to meet resistance from the City of London and other entitled quarters. And you then you then respond and then you find your way to the to the next step. I mean, what you don't do is let them sort of negate your programme, which has been traditionally what the City of London has tried to do to any any remotely uh, left wing or challenging uh, government in power. So, you know, you start off with the the nationalisations um, that were in the in the manifesto, you start off addressing the regional inequalities, the class inequalities in British society. You embark on your house building program and your other forms of public investment. You bring in the Green New Deal, an important uh, idea which I find it dismaying that Starmer has uh, discarded. Dismaying, perhaps, but not surprising. And you then, you then, you know, you you sort of cross the stream you know one one rock at a time in terms of the development of the uh, of the economic policy but the significant thing about the corbyn mcdonald agenda was it represented a break uh, a break not just with what the tories were doing in the last few years uh, but a break with uh, you know 40 plus years of neoliberal governance so it it would have been a, the opening up of a dynamic process of economic intervention um, and uh, with uh, an objective of a socialist society. 
You argue in in the book that Corbyn's anti-imperialism was the greatest threat that he posed to the ruling class. And kind of relatedly, let's see if we can tackle both of these in one, that Brexit was ultimately the nail in the coffin of Corbynism. Why was it kind of issues around foreign policy and international policy that um, so threatened Britain's ruling class and ultimately helped to lead to the end of, of Corbynism? Well, Britain's great power status, its role in the world, you know, basically as the leading ally of the USA, its role in the global hegemonic project of capitalism. It's not just a matter of sentiment or nostalgia or pride. It's also part of propping up the inflated role of the City of London, which plays a part in uh, global capitalism quite out of proportion to the size of Britain's domestic economy. And that playing that part does require uh, a capacity to be uh, an interventionist uh, power, to take various, you know, be part of alliances and take steps that keep the world order open uh, for business, that keep capital flowing. And it also is a, a matter of... Um, pride and self-identity for the uh, elite. And certainly, uh, I mean, if you want to think about what would a very British coup be organised around if there was against a left-wing government, it it wouldn't, I mean, we we wouldn't be overthrown to, because we were nationalising the water industry, or we were setting up regional investment banks. It would be around issues of NATO, of Trident, Uh, of the alliance uh, uh, with the USA. And that was made perfectly clear by the intelligence services, by the establishment that they, uh, and this is what Jeremy, of course, was strongest on. He'd been known as the foreign secretary of the left. His his grip on international politics was really very uh, impressive. uh, And it's an issue he's profoundly interested in and very knowledgeable about many parts of the world. And he was, uh, you know, committed to nuclear disarmament. He wouldn't have tried to take Britain out of NATO. There would have been no prospect of achieving that under any likely circumstances, but he would argued for different policies within NATO. And, of course, he was very committed to securing justice for the Palestinian people amongst any number of international causes that he he championed. And this was felt to be profoundly Uh, threatening, not just to the establishment in general, but to the right wing of the Labour Party, who are heavily invested in Trident, NATO, Israel, Israel, NATO, Trident. It's their incantation of what they care uh, most about. And the biggest rebellion amongst Labour MPs against Jeremy's, uh, during the period of Jeremy's leadership against the whip, was over arms sales to Saudi Arabia. I think nearly 100 Labour MPs, virtually half Mm. of the PLP, uh, declined to support a motion put down by the front bench. Uh, calling for an end to arms sales to Saudi Arabia, so that shows the intensity of that uh, uh, of that feeling and um, uh, and the the hatred that they have, and it's expressed very adequately by Starmer now for the anti-war movement, for anti-imperialist politics, uh, is something that runs uh, very very uh, deep. It's it's cultural as well as. Uh, political. It's bound up with British exceptionalism. Uh, and for example, one, um, uh, he, he was shadow minister for the Middle East and North Africa at the time. He's now moved on, a guy called Wayne David. He said, you know, the Labour Party under Corbyn was suffering from an obsession with anti-imperialism. Now, you could not find anyone in the world outside Britain who feels that an obsession with anti-imperialism uh, has either been notable in the Labour Party in the past, nor would it would be inappropriate, um, because nostalgia for the British Empire is exclusively uh, a British phenomenon. Uh, the peoples around the world, nobody wants us uh, uh, back. And the more recent record of invasions in Iraq, in Afghanistan, uh, in Libya, I mean actually that um, a uh, a certain obsession with anti-imperialism is absolutely necessary if any Labour government is going to play a, a better role um, in the world. So you you were connecting this with Brexit. It, I mean, it, it was a fault line that ran through the, the Labour voting coalition uh, that was needed. 
the redefinition of politics um, around are you leave or remain rather than Labour or Tory was uh, was fatal. Uh, it drowned out the transformational message of uh, Corbynism, and also it bogged Corbynism as a politics of um, you know principle and integrity down in all sorts of parliamentary manoeuvring, which, as I've said, was the least um, uh, productive uh, use of uh, uh, Corbyn's uh, time. And we had a 2017 manifesto um, commitment, which said we will deliver Brexit only on Labour terms. That worked uh, in 2017. We held our coalition together and expanded it indeed quite considerably. We then got driven into supporting a a second uh, referendum. And I argue in the book that it was in 2017, after the general election, when Jeremy was at his highest point, where he had the possibility, I think, to reframe the terms of the debate to some extent uh, and rule out a second referendum at a time when there wasn't a significant movement for it. And that that chance was missed. We were just sort of waiting for the May government to collapse. Uh, We overestimated how likely that was uh, going to be. And then in the end, we got uh, bogged down in an incremental uh, move towards uh, a position which which I can't really be too scathing about, where we were going to have a second referendum. The choice was going to be between a Labour-negotiated deal, that would be quite like the status quo, and Remain, which would actually be the status quo, uh, that the, we were then going to, most of the leading figures in the and the putative Corbyn government weren't even going to advocate for the deal they'd negotiated. They were going to say, no, we still want to uh, uh, remain. And you could see coming from a mile off how this would play in the constituencies that we ended up losing. You know, uh, uh, the brutal fact of the matter was if we lost a million Labour Remain votes to Lib Dems and the Greens, it would cost us hardly any seats at all. If we lost a million votes, uh, leave Labour Leave voters to uh, the Tories, that was 30 or 40 seats uh, straight gone straight off the bat. So that's a sort of telescoped version of the argument I try and develop in the book, uh, that while any number of factors, including some that will exist in the future, like opposition from the media, the state and the and the PLP uh, from parliamentarism, played a part in Corbyn's defeat, the mishandling of Brexit, the moving away from the 2017 position, was ultimately the coup de grace. Um, the next thing I wanted to do, which might end up not really <laughs> working out, but I wanted to discuss all of the six lessons that you lay out that we could have learned from Corbynism. Mm-hmm. We're not going to have time to do that. So instead, I'm going to pick out a few. Okay, this one I particularly liked. The left must remember its achievements because our opponents won't. Um, what does that look like when we uh, look back over the Corbyn years? Well, I mean, 2017 was a huge achievement. Uh, We astonished everyone, including to some extent uh, ourselves. And by we, I mean the the whole movement around Corbyn uh, and uh, his leadership that had unexpectedly won in 2015, had defended itself successfully against the PLP coup in 2016, was almost universally supposed to blow up on first contact with the electorate. Uh, we got this vast increase in Labour's vote, in Labour's share of the vote, only the third time since 1970 that Labour's got more than 40% of the vote. And of course, that has now been completely written out. The The 2019 result was the one that the media was expecting us to get in 2017. That was politics as normal, radical leader, uh, big defeat. Uh, that's what they expected in 2017. And they didn't get it. And I think we do need to go back to 2017 as a sign of the potential that uh, a well-judged radical uh, program and campaigning vigour and vision uh, allied to a politician with uh, uh, integrity, um, that it did... Uh, it did all against the background of a society that was already looking broken and it looks only worse uh, now, that that is a way that the left can very nearly win. Of course, we lost in 2017, and that needs to be uh, remembered as well. Um, But very often, 40% is quite enough to win. Um, And so that's uh, 
that's something that we do need to uh, remember. And it's something that the, the Starmerites and the media, they, they just pass over in more or less silence 2017. It's only 2019 that they want to uh, recall. Lesson five is that class politics should define our political battleground. Play on Tory territory and you're losing from the outset. Yeah, I mean, class politics is sort of somewhat uh, besieged at the moment and how it is integrated with what's known, and I don't use the term pejoratively, identity politics uh, is a challenge. I put that in in the consideration of the 2017 election because we managed to get past the uh, the leave-remain binary and actually get something that united a lot of millions of working-class uh, voters, uh, both the sort of so-called newer working class in, in the uh, big cities and the so-called traditional working class in other areas, uh, on a common programme that attempted to get a sort of radical social democracy that could address people's uh, needs. Now, I think there's quite a lot of nostalgia for that form of class politics throughout uh, society. Uh, and uh, it, it's, it's about, you know, class, and I, I class needs reconstituting um, as, as, a, as a social actor uh, and as a political reality in Britain uh, today. Uh, it can't be done by leaning on images of the working class from decades, uh, uh, decades gone by. But it is still, it is not a divisive thing, class. That's how it's often misrepresented in the media. Uh, it's a, a unifying uh, force that establishes the common interests of tens of millions of people. And um, we found a way to, you know, give at least a temporary uh, expression uh, to that, where it could hold its own, by and large, against... Um, all those forces that tend to say, no, forget your working class, you're this, you're that, this other is more uh, important. And finally, and very pertinently for this moment, can you talk about lesson four? And there are three more lessons, by the way, which is probably good that we didn't get to talk about all six because it then is an incentive to go out and buy the book. But lesson four, uh, which is really pertinent now, a crisis is the moment to assert your values, not dilute them. What did you mean by that? Well, that was born out of quite specifically the uh, terrible terrorist atrocity in Manchester, which occurred in the middle of the 2017 uh, election campaign, when, uh, as you'll know, a terrorist blew himself up and killed, uh, I think, more than 20 uh, people at a concert in Manchester. Campaigning was uh, suspended thereafter, but then after you know three or four days, we had to crank up again. And there was a big debate about whether we should simply condemn the terrorists and leave it at that, uh, which would be the traditional way that most politicians of all parties have always uh, responded, or whether we should look deeper into why these attacks were still occurring 16 years into the war on terror, uh, as it uh, then was. And was there a connection with British foreign policy. That's not to justify the attack, which couldn't be justified under any terms, but whether there are underlying reasons. And we had that uh, argument. And um, Jeremy, when he made his speech, he said, look, uh, the fact these attacks are still happening show our foreign policy has failed, uh, that the wars of intervention have not succeeded even in their own terms. And, of course, the Tories uh, jumped all over this, a lot of our own side, including people very close to the heart of the Corbyn project, were very nervous about it. But, you know, opinion polling showed immediately that most people agreed with Jeremy. So the Tories had to drop their line of attack. And my view at the time is there's no point in fighting to win the leadership of the Labour Party and so on. If, if when you get to the moment you abandon what Jeremy had been arguing from public platforms for the you know preceding two decades in favour of just uh, expedient or mealy-mouthed um, things. Tell the truth and stand up for what you what you believe in, because if you do, you may lose, but if you don't, you've lost already. On the second page of the book, you argue that 
Well, this is in reference to um, a write-up of the Financial Times, which describes the Corbyn years as a shameful footnote in British history. But you argue that when Corbynism enters the history books, it may indeed be more than a footnote, perhaps rather a template for the future. There's no small irony in the fact that a lot of the stuff that we need right now to fix capitalism, just to kind of avoid a very, very deep and pronounced economic crisis, was in the 2019 and 2017 manifestos. But no one will touch it because Corbyn said it. Do you think we'll eventually end up with a kind of economic Corbynism of the ruling class? Well, that's an interesting question. I mean, as I said earlier, when they had to deal with a pandemic, there was almost a a stampede towards semi-Corbynite solutions. I mean, the magic money tree, which supposedly didn't exist, was working overtime. And uh, I mean, yes, I mean, this is the thing that uh, some of the measures can an extremist be used to prop up capitalism uh, rather than transform it? I remember at an early stage in the pandemic, a guy called Alistair Heath, you probably know of him, he's a ultra Hayek Friedman a supporter who was a columnist at The Telegraph, assuring his readers that the measures that Sunak and Johnson were taking then, that Frederick Hayek would have approved of them because they kept the system going for fear of something worse. Now, I don't suppose many people were particularly troubled at the time as to whether Frederick Hayek approved of what the government was doing or not. But it's a sign that, uh, you know, in extremists, um, they can turn to, you know, radical uh, uh, solutions. I mean, the ruling class, the, the capitalists, um, will always concede profit if it's necessary to preserve their property. And will even sometimes concede their property if it maintains their power. Uh, and social class power is the is the critical threshold that they will not let anyone else cross. And they will manoeuvre and take you know solutions from anywhere uh, in extremists. And I think, however, that the program that Corbyn proposed looks even more relevant now than it did in you know twenty seventeen or twenty fifteen because we're in a much more of a crisis. The shambles has got worse. And Starmer has obviously turned his back uh, on everything associated with his predecessor. But life will assert itself. It is asserting itself with the uh, industrial action, the growing wave of anger, and the panic that the establishment are, are looking at for this uh, winter with fuel bills and uh, and so on. There's only so far people can be can be pushed maybe they will they will start to lean in a corbyn direction it's not likely i think under liz truss as, as we're going to uh, uh, going to get but in, in which case the space is all the greater for the left to you know raise its own values and its own program and say that only only this can really make a difference to the state we're in because i was told long 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 ago and I believe it's true that 90% of the case for socialism is capitalism. Very true. Which is to say, if capitalism worked well, well, you wouldn't need to discuss whether socialism is possible or not, because no one would be interested. But it's a continuing failure of capitalism that puts Corbynism and other forms of socialism back on the agenda again and again. And that is probably a very good place to end. This has ended up being a really fantastic conversation and uh, went on much longer than I expected because there was just so much to discuss. But there is still so much more in Andrew's book. So I'd really recommend people going out and buying that. So thank you, Andrew, for joining me on this episode of A World to Win. Thank you very much, Grace. Ciao.